Welcome to another episode of Hemp Barons. I'm Dan Humiston, and on today's show, Joy travels to Finland to speak with the hemp pioneer team that discovered, developed, and nurtured a variety of hemp called Finola, which is grown throughout the world for its nutritional grain and seed. Their 30-year commitment to Finola is an incredible story. Let's join Joy's conversation with Jace Calloway and Anita Hemel. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Jace and Anita. Well, thank you for having us, Joy. Thank you. Are you joining us today from Denmark as opposed to Finland, where you reside? Yes, we're in Finland. We're in the forest, actually, in Finland today. In your summer cabin. My gosh. Well, for those listeners who aren't, haven't heard of Fanola, Fanola is a phenomenal variety of hemp for nutritional grain, for seed, for human and animal consumption, for those who are actually using it for ag seed. Ag seed, of course, has not been proved yet in North America or, as far as I'm aware, anywhere in the world hemp seeds for animal nutrition, but certainly for human nutrition. It is the most nutrient-dense seed in the entire plant kingdom and the highest digestible form of protein in the plant and animal kingdom. And Jace Calloway and Anita Hemela are responsible for this very, very popular variety. Please tell us what brought you to hemp, first of all, and then we'll go into how on earth you birthed or created this beautiful variety together. Well, since the second grade in the U.S., I I was always interested in in cannabis through the drug education they were providing to us in the primary school. And uh, certainly it's part of our our culture, having grown up in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and so forth and so on. At least for me, medicinal plants have always been part of my academic research. This just made sense after a certain point. We'll get more into it, but we started in, in the early 90, 1990s. We've been at it ever since. So for me, it's not my first medicinal plant to work with, but it seems like it's going to be the last one because it's totally consumed my life during the last 26 years. So a natural evolution for everything that you, you already love. And so here we have Jace Calloway from North Carolina, or is it South Carolina, Jace, originally? Well, I was born in Texas, and I lived mostly in Arkansas, Louisiana, and Mississippi for most of my life until I met Anita in 1983. I was a graduate student at the University of Mississippi, where the government grows their marijuana, but I wasn't really interested in that. I was more interested in Anita. Yeah, so I was born in Finland. I went to the University of Mississippi in '83 to be an exchange student for one semester, and that's where I met Chase. He lured me to stay the summer as well, (laughs) so we decided that we would move to California and to San Francisco in particular. This was in 85. Right, and then 1988, we finally moved to Finland, and we've been here ever since. The, The hint thing came a little later in the early 90s, there was no plan, and, and basically there's still no plan. We, we don't really have a plan. It seems that hemp does not allow people to have plans, or at least no one plans <laughs> in hemp. I can't what which way it is. You touched on something really important, Joy, about 
Another example of the hemp paradox. Yes, perfectly fine for humans. No, not for animals. So uh, totally backwards. Usually every new crop in a, in a society is given to animals first and then eventually to humans. So here we have a small percentage of hemp feeding the people and uh, not very much feeding animals, which is a pity because you can make omega-3 eggs by feeding hemp seed or hemp seed cake or anything like that to chickens. And they accept it better than flax, for example, linseed oil. That's what's normally given to them, which is a little toxic because it contains cyanide. And of course, the, you know, the hemp seed products contain a little bit of THC, which is not toxic whatsoever. But apparently cyanide gets a free pass, but THC is even undetectable. It's somehow suspect. How did we get into hemp? We just just kind of got into it, basically because nobody else would do it. So we did it, and we were the first ones in Finland to reintroduce this crop, and that we started that publicly in 1995. And it was a big struggle. Neither one of us are business people. We didn't really have an idea of going into business. But since no one would do it, we did. We realized we had something special up here because uh, we're above latitude 60, and that means we have 24-hour light during June. And we noticed that uh, some of our plots were flowering and producing seed. This was the auto-flowering trait that was first recognized in cannabis in 1995. So we see that all over the place in the markets. It's these short things, early flowering things. They're probably, one way or another, derived from phenolic. We did it in Finland because we could. Finland never passed any laws against cannabis cultivation. They only passed laws against the use of cannabis as a drug. So being in the feed and food, we were not considered to be a drug product. I guess the authorities just thought we would have given up after 15 years of uh, unprofitable business, but we didn't. We kept our day jobs and uh, we just did it because we could, basically, and we, and we did it because we thought it was important. This is a truly an, an agricultural innovation that came from Finland. We have this autoflowering short variety of hemp that can be harvested with the machine. Canova still produces more grain per acre than any other hemp variety on Earth. And uh, it accounted for 40% of all hemp in Canada last year. Another 40% were canola knockoffs, which we have nothing to do with. Hemp seeds are not new, of course, but a variety that can produce a lot of hemp seed as the main product, that was new. And that's caught on. It's caught on in Canada in a big way. It's slowly catching on in, in Europe. I don't quite understand what the problem is, uh, except... Europe has always been focused on fiber, so everybody getting into hemp thinks they ought to go into fiber, and that's what we did too in the beginning. We quickly learned that that was really not going to be an economically viable thing to do in a a free market economy with expensive hand labor and and no subsidies. So um, we just kept following that thread all the way through. As I said, we tried to get professional seed growers interested in this early on, but they they wouldn't touch it uh, because of the cannabis image of hemp. It just kind of bumbled along, and eventually various people picked it up and found value out of it and took it forward, as we see in Canada and as we begin to finally see in Europe. So we're finally seeing some progress here.
I guess I could emphasize a little bit of historical fact, you know, talking about modern history and him, which is uh, what Jade referred to in the sense that fiber was really what was on everybody's mind first. And us also, we were interested, intrigued by the fiber. Referring back to 1995, when we got the parents of Finola growing in our backyard. I mean, we didn't call it Finola yet, but it was it was what became Finola. At the same time, we were involved with cultural projects in this little community where we lived. And that was growing uh, fiber varieties from France. These two things coincided at the same time. So related to that, I would like to emphasize Pinola being considered an oil plant, it's even in the list of European Union's subsidies on the list of oil plants, whereas all the other ones, they were all fiber varieties. So this was a new way of thinking, thinking about hemp in terms of oil content in the seed and not the fiber. And of course, in the Pinola variety, the fiber is of lesser importance simply for the fact that it is such a short variety compared to fiber varieties. Jace and Anita, you are one of the most prolific, fiercest activist couples for the advancement of this plant and, and delivering it in a legal status to, frankly, countries. And you say, of course, Jace particularly so fluidly and with humor. Apparently, there you can't make plans or plans or hempsters don't plan or hemp just doesn't allow you to plan or, yes, cyanide gets a pass, but not THC. The reality is that there is so much truth and profound concepts that you say in these statements that you make. Let's talk about some of these lawsuits, brother and sister, and what you have had to do to deliver your safe, non-detectable, in most instances, THC, high nutritional seeds, to a planet of people who are suffering from various deficiencies. It wasn't really our idea to become activists for hemp policy in Europe and, and Canada and around the world. But we were constantly harassed by the authorities from the very beginning. So that was really not new for us. What was new for us was pushing back really hard and demanding our rights. You'll like this. We have a Bill of Rights, basic human rights in the European Union. And one of them is called the right to good administration. I know that seems absurd to anybody in the U.S. Civil servants are actually required to follow the law and make evidence-based decisions. And when they don't, I'd like to point that out. And they usually ignore us, and then we have to get their attention one way or another. Lawyers are certainly effective with specific tasks, but one way I've really found to be effective is to always be sure and get a civil servant's name in print somewhere. They hate that. And then their boss wants to know, why is your name in print? And why are you not doing something about this? There are these kind of reactions to the harassment, which are themselves low-level harassment. They do cause civil servants to do their job and obey the law because that's what we're supposed to do, and that's what we do in our business. We obey the law, and we expect that of the people that are supposed to craft these policies for us in Europe. The list is just too long for this discussion. Our legal efforts to craft policy in a 
evidence-based way continue to this day. For example, in Europe, they're still struggling with CBD. So the European Commission has finally decided they'll allow CBD in cosmetics, uh, but only if it's pure CBD produced in a lab, not the CBD produced from a plant, which is totally idiotic and illogical and without any facts. Also, different isomers of CBD can be produced in the lab that are not produced by the plant. So here we have the European Commission allowing people to put something on their skin that has never been tested in a lab, whereas CBD from the plant has over 2,600 scientific publications in the medical literature. So it has been well studied. And when the authorities tell you, oh, it's not been well studied, and what that means is, oh, they really haven't looked into it very carefully. So I just want to encourage everybody out there to push back and challenge these people and require them, no, no, demand that they do their job. <laughs> Obviously, you could tell I get a little worked up about this, but, you know, we've been going through this just for hemp for 25 years, for cannabis even longer uh, since 1937 in the U.S., Finally, things are changing, but let's not be fooled. It's not the activism that's changing. It's just purely attrition. These old people are dead or dying, and they're not there to oppose the policies anymore. And, and there are more important things to focus money and other resources on than to put people in prison for these choices, these life choices, basically. That's why we do it. We do it because we can, and we do it because we think it's important. Certainly, it is that we did not plan to become hemp activists. But with this hemp, this was more like, well, we do this because we can, and then we just assumed that somebody would see what a great idea it was, particularly with all the information that we were getting out. We were also meeting with some people. We were hoping that some real businesses would take the ideas further. Little by little, it became evident to us that nobody would take these things further and start really bringing all the beneficial aspects of hemp into everybody's life. We saw already that could be done. So, like little by little, we started thinking that, well, I guess we have to do that. We have to start thinking of in a business sense and registering a phenola as a variety. One of these major battles that we fought, it, it again, has to do with the European Union. First, it was difficult to to get Finola on the list of subsidized hemp varieties because it did not really produce much fiber. It produced seed, and the seed was the main thing. It took a little convincing, some years of convincing of the authorities to establish a new category called oil seed hemp. So got it on, on the list of those varieties. This was 2003. And then 2006, it was taken off of the list because some of the THC testing was done wrong. It took us like seven years to get back on the list. So all these years, we were really fighting, writing letters to the European Commissioner about this and when we eventually got the rights back, they only gave it back to Finland, not to all of Europe. And so in the meantime, some countries went to such extremes as to prohibit growing Finola entirely. 
and this was on DNA Sweden that totally prohibited canola. In other countries, it was still allowed to do, and it did continue on a very small scale in Finland and some other countries like Estonia. Some farmers really thought that it was not allowed to be cultivated anymore because it was not on this list anymore. So it took another few years to get the subsidy and the correction of the image back on the level of all of the European Union. Yep, that was eight years of lost business. And then all of a sudden, when we got our rights back, we're suddenly supposed to have enough seed to supply the world. So let's say we learned a lot during those eight years, didn't we? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) We really did. Fortunately, during all those years when the business was not working out yet, we had other jobs, so we were able to carry on. If we had taken the loan for the company, you know, to, to really start having our own production of, of cold-pressed oil and things like that, we would have absolutely done bankruptcy. And, and who knows if anybody would know about Finola then today, if oh, that had really taken place. Oh, dear. You know, if we did that in the States in the 90s, bankruptcy would have been the least of our problems. I'm sure I would have gone to prison. In our our remaining time, there are a couple of important questions I want to make sure that we get out there. This one can be shorter because I really want to expand a little bit on the next one because I really want the listeners to understand about intellectual property rights around Mm. genetics for hemp. Is Fenola being grown in any United States? Yes, it is. It is, and it has been ever since 2014. Not all of them, because there's not a national policy and there's interstate commerce issues in the U.S. that prevent the easy transport from state to state of seeds. And it's quite impossible to be filling out all the forms for everybody's bag of seed all over the place. But no, we're in the northern tier of states where it does well. Hopefully, if the USDA gets their policy in order before 2020, we'll be in all of the states in in 2020. The USDA sent their draft to the White House a few weeks ago. It's probably on some top security server by now. I guess we'll never see it. We don't know. Yes, there's going to be a public comment period. So we're getting less and less confident that these federal regulations will be filed in a final form before 2020. I I would be shocked if there wouldn't be a public comment period. I'm almost certain there will be a public comment period, but that doesn't even start until they're released from the, you know, from the White House. So I do believe we're moving forward and and I'm involved with multiple groups. As as you know, I am a staunch activist also, and we're meeting with the USDA and have been meeting with the USDA as well as the FDA, the EPA. But I sure hope that those final regulations are going to be uh, put out for public comment here as soon as possible. And every day is a new day and another chance for them to do it. And that's kind of the way I had to handle the unrolling of the legalization of hemp as an agricultural commodity in the United States. So let's talk for a minute around intellectual property with hemp varieties. And maybe also a quick primer here that you have certified pedigreed seeds and how that pedigreed seeds fits into intellectual property around genetics and material transfer agreements. Yeah, there's not enough good information on intellectual property protection for plants. Basically, it boils down to this. 
Plants are protected by plant variety rights or something called plant breeder rights. It's all under an international treaty, which is administered by the OECD. That's the Organization for Economic Development, which most Western countries sign up to. If you have a new variety of a plant and it's distinct, stable, and uniform uh, as a crop, then it can be protected with plant variety rights, which run a certain amount of time, 20 or 25 years or something like that. And it's actually a very narrow spectrum of rights. Basically, for us, what that means is we can put the phenola name on a bag of seed with a government sticker that says, this is phenola, it's 90% germination, it has 99.99 purity and you get that after you've passed through two years of these distinct uniformity and stability trials. If your new variety is shown to be distinct, uniform, and stable, then it can be protected with plant variety rights. Now, we never wanted to do that, but we could not get it listed on any country's list of approved hemp varieties if it was not protected by plant variety rights. So this is the reason why one would do that. If you want to have certified seed, then you would have to have that kind of protection. In Europe, it's not so in North America. They play by different rules. Still, the intellectual property protection is with plant variety rights. You cannot patent a plant with traditional patent methods unless it's genetically modified. So if I were Monsanto and I genetically modify a canola, then I can protect it with a patent. And I can also enforce that patent much easier than with a plant variety rights patent. So Monsanto just has to do a quick chemical test to see, ah, that's our genetic tag in your genome. We own that and now we own you. In our case, we would really have to go through a lot of testing, side-by-side trials, maybe for a couple of years, or, or just basically ask people, where did you get that, and how did you derive that? We know cheating's happening, but we're not the world's police. And in one way, we'd like to look at the cheating as free advertising, because if, if people really see what Fenola does... They want to get the real stuff from the real source. You don't want to buy crappy seed if you're a large-scale farmer or then run uncertified seed, which should be used for food production. You can use that for farming, but there's really no guarantee that it is what it is or any other the quality parameters have not been checked by an independent agency. So professional farmers don't really want to bother with stuff like that, in addition to legal sanctions that can occur. Low-level and gardener farmers, they'll grow whatever they get their hands on, and they have the right to do so. But someone that has uncertified fenola seed does not have the right to call it fenola seed. We don't even have that right. We cannot just call a bag of seed fenola. We have to have a government sticker on that bag. And government testing. And the whole bit. We don't do the testing. They test the production crop. They test the seed. It's expensive and on and on and on. So that's what the rights allow us to do is to interface with government agencies and these kind of industrial seed schemes that exist for all other crops 
You know, for example, if you buy apples, you may or may not know what the variety is, but it, there really is a name for all of the different varieties of apples and all the different varieties of oranges. That's how these things are done. That's how agriculture works. And I think probably a closing piece of information or lesson that we can give to the listeners are material transfer. OECD, of course, is Organization for Economic Cooperative Development. And I just had to say it because um, it was a slip of your tongue not to, and, and hemp is all about cooperation. And so wonderful that the OECD is, is served this, this purpose. And also the Plant Variety Protection Act was after the signing of the 2018 Farm Bill opened up for hemp. So that's going to be interesting here in the United States. The USDA is accepting those applications. So that's going to be interesting. But material transfer agreements occur when seed, particularly certified pedigreed seed, is being transferred from, say, an agent of the breeder to the grower. What are some basic concepts or the basic provisions there around what the grower can and cannot do with those seeds based on that, the terms of the material transfer agreement? I think material transfer agreements are basically unnecessary and a waste of time because they don't really prevent people from doing anything or doing something. And they're not even required. If you go mm. and look at the plant variety rights regulation in the OECD manifest, then you'll see that individuals have every right in the world to grow whatever they get their hands on, to breed with whatever they get their hands on, it's written into the law. We all have this. It's a basic human right for us to grow whatever we get our hands on. It says so in Genesis, grow it. (laughs) You don't get any higher than that. Again, what it does is it allows us to produce and sell something that someone around the world can trust according to a certification tag that it is what it is. It's not like Mm. uh, we're growing skunk and our skunk is different than everybody else's skunk or something like that. That's not a variety. That's just something that people say what it is. It's not an independent kind of certification scheme of any kind whatsoever. People who complain about intellectual property rights for plants really don't understand at all what they do, the limitations or anything about it. Somehow it thinks that it's infringing on their rights as a human being, when in fact they're so ignorant they don't even know that. Mm, so true. And so the listeners know whether whether Fanula does a material transfer agreement or not, seed breeders do, they will tell you, you can grow this plant, but you may not use the seeds that are produced from this plant for further propagation. As much as those rights do exist, and we love those rights, we do have to protect our seed breeders. We do have to protect families and families like yours who have sacrificed years and years to create these unique, distinct stable varieties that deliver so much promise and nutrition to us. And so it's very important for farmers and for folks entering the hemp space that there is respect and protections for these seeds and to pay attention to the material transfer agreements and those provisions. And we just feel that it's very important to protect our seed breeders who have sacrificed so much. 
We sure tried our material transfer agreement, and we learned that monkeys really just don't know how to read. They're just going to do whatever the hell they want with whatever to get their hands on. So also, all these nice people that you mentioned are referred to, and we are in that category, are perfectly welcome to register whatever they want under the same guidelines that we did. We haven't closed the door there. In fact, we've opened it wide open. If anyone would like to just take a look and understand this a little better, they'll see that. But somehow, some people think that registering plants somehow closes the door. These people really need to look a little deeper into the kind of thing they're complaining about because they look a little ridiculous by showing their ignorance in this way. The other way to protect your intellectual property is just to keep it proprietary. These, these are the two standard ways that people protect things in the modern world. Either you keep it a secret and don't let it out, try to protect it with a material transfer agreement, or you go through this other channel and get lawyers involved and fill out a lot of forms and pay fees and do trials and have it very public and very open where actually everyone has access to it. That's the route we took, is to let everybody have access to this. And again, the right we have is to put a sticker on it and call it Fanola. That's just the way it works. So if someone else would like to do that, it should not look exactly like Fanola, and they should not call it Fanola, because we've already done that. Please go find something else to do with your time, is what I would say to people that want to dig into my pockets for the hard work that I've done. So please, have respect for other people's work, and go off and do something for yourself that helps humanity. That's what I would say to people that are complaining about that. Add to that a little bit, in the sense that it's kind of ironic a little bit, we really did not think of going into business with hemp in any way. We were trying to to give our ideas away for free and hoping that somebody would take all these things further. But in the 90s, late 90s and early 2000 and onwards, nobody was doing anything. And we were struggling with all these issues that had to do with authorities more than anything else. It felt at times like we were just pulling these sledge of rocks, <laughs> as we say in Finnish. And now when I look back, well, we have aged decades, and we did all that time, and we were pioneers. And then if somebody wants to just jump into the bandwagon, well, they should bring something new with them, That's you know, right. not just ride on the work of somebody else. I mean, they can use all the information we we have out there. And like, like Jay said, they can even use the genetics. But they have to create something new. Yeah, build on the genetics we've thrown out there. Uh, we, we see it out there. We see where it's gone. And, and, hey, that's great. All the boats are raised now. So get a paddle <laughs> and start paddling. As your sister and here who's been working on the movement since 1990 and pushed those rocks up those hills and had those events and sang the song of hemp at the top of my lungs as best as I could for years and years. And now here we have gained traction with all of that energy, with all of that commitment and dedication and drive and sacrifice. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for everything, every minute, every frustration, every letter you wrote, every impassioned 
speech and presentation you've given that has helped to lead us to this point. And now let's go whaling, as you say, deliver it all over the world together and uh, again, continue on this mission together. You are some of the brightest spots in the global hemp movement, Jason Anada, and I can't thank you enough for being with us today. Thank you so much, Joy. It's so wonderful to talk to you. Yeah, thank you very much. And we really look forward to seeing you in, in next month, as a matter of fact. Same, same on every level, guys. Love you so much, and I'll see you soon. Keep harvesting. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at DopeHistory.com.